the truth, the whole truth, and nothing How but does the, the truth. defendant plead not guilty. Members of the jury, please turn to page, page two hundred and twenty-one, file eight at tab six of Dr. Clark's report on methods of measuring intracranial pressure. Guilty. guilty. Hello. I'm Gary Slapper, Professor of Law at the Open University, and with me is Francis Gibb, Legal Editor of the Times. Law courts are immensely important parts of society because they're the places where we resolve all our criminal and civil disputes. How well suited the people who act in these places are to the jobs that they're supposed to perform is a very important question. Francis. How well do you think jurors and expert witnesses are suited to the tasks they perform? Well, Gary, it's a very interesting question. I personally do think they're well suited, but it's a subject that has come up a lot lately. And I think the reason is that there's been a bit of a spotlight shone on the role of experts and a series of high-profile cases where experts have been found wanting. And following on from that, I think people have then thought. Right, there's something wrong with experts here. They're getting it wrong. But what about jurors? Can they actually understand what the experts are telling them? And there's been some evidence that jurors have difficulties in understanding experts. I'm thinking of one case recently where these two issues came to a head, and two jurors came forward and actually complained about the trial process and raised questions about the running of the case by. Experts, and、um, in a way, that has highlighted it. I suppose there is an inherent difficulty, isn't there, in a court process that relies so much on experts. The contradiction being that, on the one hand, you need people who are so narrowly expert or so clever, or have got possession of such、uh, really specialist knowledge that no one else really knows about this, and that their declarations on these matters are going to help determine a case. At the same time as trying to make it plain enough in ordinary language for jurors or other people in the court to understand, that seems to me to be quite a, a challenge for the law courts. Yes, it's a challenge. My own view is that it's incredibly important that, however complex the case, and this debate has been raised over fraud trials as well as child battering cases involving scientific evidence. However complex the case, the expert mustn't keep it in the realm of.、Um, Expertise. So the whole challenge, if you like, for the for the court and the expert is to demystify and make that accessible, whether it be to a jury or to the judge. As sometimes it's only a judge in these cases,、mm. so that it actually can be understood. I mean, the most dangerous thing would be for the whole thing to be taken into the role of expertise, where no one can actually understand what's going on and nobody、mm. understands the decision ever being made. Yes. Um, Lord Devlin、uh, once described the jury as a miniature parliament, and noting that there's something with the jury trial very democratic, demotic about the way that、uh, justice works. Because for exactly the point you're making, if someone、uh, has got some information that they think would. Turn the case one way or another, but it's just so fearsomely complicated that no ordinary people can understand it. That in itself is probably a good reason for not letting the case hinge on that point, and that、uh, there, there is both、um, Einstein and Mrs.、Uh, Thatcher, Lady Thatcher, both used to say that、uh, if an idea can't be reduced to something simple enough for ordinary people to understand it, it's probably not a good idea in the first place. The, the trouble is with the increasing complexity of cases. 
it gives ammunition for people who worry about the jury anyway to say, well, I think in certain kinds of cases, fraud is the obvious one. As this debate has come up and up again over recent years, where we should have specialists only sitting on the case. They also draw ammunition from research, and there has been some, although research has not been much allowed on juries, but there was some recently, um, which showed that, never mind experts, but two-thirds of jurors didn't understand what the judges tell them about the law. So when they retire to the yes. jury room, they don't actually know what they're meant to be doing. I mean, I personally don't think the answer to that is, that, right, well, we won't have jurors there in those cases. We'll have a panel of experts. That raises another whole series of problems. Mm-hmm. But it is ammunition used by some who, I mean, I'm just thinking of Louis Blom Cooper, who's um, a well-known QC, and he, he has long had doubts about the jury system, and he describes them as a recipe for incompetence and bias. As against that, there's Winston Churchill, who describes them as the supreme protection for ordinary individuals against the state. Mm. So it's those two positions. Yes, yeah, it, it, a very... Uh, neatly counterposed um, set of ideas. I think it was Blom Cooper also uh, in one of those uh, debates said that uh, in favour of experts and against the jury, you wouldn't want your freedom or your uh, civil status to be determined by non-experts any more than you'd want your uh, appendix taken out by a butcher. <laughs> you need uh, uh, experts to do this. thing. I, I, I agree with you. I think it's a rather patronising idea in a way. And, and sometimes there are good cases, I think, to illustrate that the experts, particularly the ones who are so fated and um, applauded as being the real experts, turn out to be completely wrong. And they often turn out to be completely wrong by a sort of commonsensical intervention that shows that all Ordinary people or lesser people than great experts uh, have as much right to be part of the proceedings as anyone else. And one case that comes to mind would be the uh, unfortunate case of um, Saroy Meadow, the uh, uh, mm. paediatrician and expert who gave evidence in several cases which led to women being convicted of killing their children. And in one I think, notorious utterance, he said that the chances of uh, there being two cot deaths within the same family were one in 73 million, which mm. entirely ignored the possibility that through genetic predisposition, it would be very much more likely that if a woman who had a child predisposed to one cot death would have another one in, in the same family. And people untrained in paediatric medicine and in statistics would be able to see that. And yet so much before these cases were overturned, the convictions were overturned, swung on the evidence of someone who was... Uh, yes, I mean, I think, expert, yeah. I think it's very difficult, isn't it, the um, weight you give to expert evidence? Because quite obviously, the, the experts are going to carry more than a lay person in court. And when they get it wrong, the damage that they do is going to be so much the greater as a result. And in that case, it was absolutely catastrophic. Hmm. I think experts have to be Obviously, you have to have the counterbalancing expert on the other side. In that case, maybe there should have been someone, it's easy with hindsight, to a statistician or whatever, to pull it apart. But I think experts have to be really rigorously trained. I mean, they have to be trained Mm -hmm. in the way they present their evidence. They have to be trained not to be hard guns, which I think they aren't actually so much now pushing a cause, but just to say the facts as they find them, albeit the facts that can be challenged by the other side. I think people looking back on our age in 500 years' time will probably be puzzled by how loose a system it was. Uh, I think a good a, a case, when you think of this case, but uh, it strikes me as, as interesting and probably one of 
good instruction about the English legal system. It's a case called uh, Flicker from um, 1999 and someone was caught in a car with three tyres and the police officers asked for an explanation and, and no good one was given and the fellow was eventually prosecuted for attempting to handle stolen goods they couldn't actually conclusively prove that the tyres were stolen it was just three random tyres and everything looked yeah. a bit suspicious, suspicious enough for the prosecution to be launched and for him to end up before a jury in a Crown Court and uh, after the jury had retired they passed a note back to the judge that said one of us is an expert in tyres and he's telling us that the digits, I think it was 088 on the tyre, mean that that tyre was manufactured in August 1998. Now, according to the defendant's uh, testimony, these tyres were in his house at that month. And if what he says is true, then um, he's innocent. But if what our tyre expert says is true, then they were just manufactured then. They couldn't possibly have been in his front living room. No. They, they manufactured. Um, are we allowed to take that into account? And uh, it went to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal eventually said, no, you can't take that into account. And the reason is, it might be very reliable evidence, but in the round and looking across the rules of justice, it would be wrong to convict someone on the basis of evidence which the other side hasn't had an opportunity to test and probe and contradict in court. It might mm. be absolutely perfectly good evidence, yes. unfortunately, if it was in this case, and the uh, prosecution's case was, was not as good as it could have been. But we must play things strictly according to the rules Jewel. that are going to produce the best way of, yes. of dealing with things. It raises interesting questions, it seems to me, about then the dividing line between what jurors who are there because of their social, individual you know, knowledge and what they know about life, the cut-off point between what you are allowed to bring by way of your knowledge as a human being and what you aren't allowed to bring because it no. roams into the area of expertise. I, I yeah. think it's very, very difficult. I mean, it's really an artificial thing. I think the internet presents all kinds of challenges to, for the jury and the jury system and the court system. And the internet is here. And I think... Recent research by Dr Cheryl Thomas showed that even though judges exhort juries not to, of course they're going to, mm. and it's unrealistic to expect them not to. And I think the best thing is to perhaps acknowledge that they're going to, but highlight the dangers of it in the way that they do about newspapers. Don't talk mm. about the case, don't rely on newspaper reports. They are going to probably do it, but just mm. highlight the dangers. Mm. I think the internet does present a whole new dimension Mm. Which, which hasn't really been addressed. Mm. I mean, another, another aspect of it is that um, Lord Chief Justice, it's slightly off the point we're on, but the Lord Chief Justice is on the internet, was, said he was very worried about the internet generation because not for that reason, that they research a case that when they're sitting as a juror, but that as jurors, he said, they've got no attention span. <laughs> so he said they're not really used to listening to oral evidence and after about five minutes, they're probably not concentrating. So he said, you know, how are we going to address that? Yeah, no, there's a very interesting point. And I, I, I agree with it in some ways and disagree in another. I think it, I know exactly what is meant by that and where all sorts of things by way of both entertainment and instruction are given in smaller capsules than they used to be, then over time that the concentration span of people begins to diminish. On the other hand, I think there is there is something that counterbalances that and that um, the generation or the social group that he's talking about is also used much more than previous ones to what we would probably describe as multitasking where you see people in front of the internet and they are on Facebook and they're also on email and they have a mobile phone buzzing 
buzzing texts at the both and they're listening to music at the same time. Their mind is operating simultaneously in a, in a multi-functional um, way as opposed to someone a hundred years ago who's sitting in a plain room reading one book and without yes. anyone listening to it yes. and, and so on. So it does, uh, it exercises the mind uh, in different ways. And I think also being able to um, be alert to, th- you know, for example, on the, on the computer screen, to be alert to things changing quickly, to have a developed facility for reading and taking in information from different parts of a screen or a split screen or more than one location is a concentration-enhancing function as well. So you'd hope that it went some way to... Yeah, both ways. Yeah, cast both ways. Thank you so much, Francis. This is a podcast from the Open University Business School Law Programme. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk slash law. From the Open University... For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.